Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. This includes film, fiction, literature, political movements, people, uh, all kinds of other stuff. You can look back through the list of episodes to see uh, the kind of stuff that um, that I cover. Um, sorry that it's been a while since the last episode. That's for a number of reasons, but it's partly because of some changes that I'll be making to the podcast. Uh, you'll notice the new logo, if I've managed to update it properly so that it's shown up on iTunes or whatever else. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, so you'll be noticing some differences over the next month or so in that rather than doing the kind of episode a month sometimes more sometimes less that I that I normally do depending on how much time I have and, and how much uh, how much time I have to put into the stuff I'm covering there's going to be an episode roughly every week or so for about the next month maybe slightly more as well as additional bonus episodes in between those so that's part of the reason that's been a while since the last episode, because it's taken me some time to prepare this stuff and, and get it ready. Um, the reason I'm doing that, because uh, obviously this isn't a schedule that I'm usually able to keep up. Um, I've mentioned this before in the podcast, but so sorry if you've heard me say this before, but some people may not have heard me say it. Uh, a lot of time goes into each episode so um they usually entail me for example having to read a book i take notes on the book i write up some thoughts on that i sometimes do additional reading around the book i have to find guests i have to arrange the interviews i have to do interviews edit the podcast i put many many hours into each episode that i do um which is why it often takes me a bit of time to get them up but I would like to have a more regular schedule. I'd like to put out uh, episodes regularly like I'm going to be doing um, over this next next few weeks. So the extent to which I'm going to be able to keep up that kind of schedule or get closer to that is going to depend on, on you and your sport, which ties into the uh, other changes I'm going to be making, which is to the podcast Patreon. Most of you probably know what Patreon is, but if you don't, it's a thing where you sign up to give someone a certain amount of money a month to support whatever they're doing and you can like cancel wherever you want or change the amount whenever you want and all that stuff so as it stands my patron has just been there for people that want to give me um, a bit of cash to help me out there's not been any kind of specific reward for that as above and beyond what you know the, the podcast that I produce and I'm very grateful to those of you who are already supporting me on that um, so yes thank you very much for that but it's become pretty obvious to me that most patrons obviously um, offer people stuff for for the, the money that they contribute and I feel like that's something I have to try doing if I'm going to sort of persuade more of you to, to sign up and help me to keep doing this. So the um, standard episodes, I'm going to keep producing those, they're going to keep being free to everybody, but I will be um, producing bonus episodes for those of you that sign up for $5 a month, which um, means I'm basically as it stands i'll be producing uh bonus episodes for like one person but i'm hoping that a few more of you will be interested in, in that and, and sign up for that so the first one will be out either now when you're hearing this or in the next few days um which is an episode on utopia and music so i've got quite a few people on i've had on for previous episodes talking about 
um, talking about a song and its relationship to Utopia. So I've got Darren Anderson, who was on my Cities and Architecture episode, Anna McFarlane, who's been on the podcast twice to talk about um, Neuromancer and Strange Days, Sean McTiernan, who's also been on twice to talk about um, Nemesis and Kamikaze 89, Adam Roberts, who you might be familiar with from his science fiction novels. Um, he was also previously on the podcast to talk about H.G. Wells' A Modern Utopia. I've also got David Bell, who um, hasn't been on the podcast before, so this will be the first time uh, he's on. Have I mentioned everyone that's on there? I hope so. I've also got like another bonus episode already recorded, and yeah, I'll be that'll be ongoing. So I'll, I'll continue to be releasing those. I'm also getting some nice little Utopian Horizons badges, or like pins, I guess you call them if you're American, um, at the um, two dollar tier. But yeah, anyway, you can go and look and see all that on um, patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I'd really appreciate it if you could just think about uh, maybe supporting me to do this because it is um, quite difficult for me uh, to do this podcast in terms of like time and my, uh, again, I've mentioned this before, so sorry to, to bore you, but I am self-employed, I'm freelance, I am in a, uh, I am, I suppose, a precarious worker in that sense, which means that time I spend on the podcast is time um, that I could spend uh, earning money and that's quite difficult in itself so yeah I'd really like to be able to get into a position where I could get a bit of money in for this podcast so that I could um, that would justify me to put more time into it and keep up a more regular schedule so yeah that's the that's what's happening there I'm hoping that the next month or so will kind of show you what I'd like this podcast to be how it could be um i'm hoping that some of you will come to support me and make that sustainable and help me to keep doing it but we'll, we'll see how it goes in any case if you sign up for the um five dollar tier i'm going to be producing bonus episodes for you so um that's going to happen whatever so yeah i have no idea what the response to, to this will be like but yeah as i say i appreciate if you could just go to patreon.com slash utopian risons and think about just slinging, you know, the price of probably not even like the price of a beer a month or whatever my way for the work that I put into this and to make this sustainable to keep going and, and more regular and so on. Right, you probably don't want to hear me ramble and uh, ramble about that and, and beg um, anymore. So I'll move on. Um, oh, also, uh, and also just on my constant beggings for iTunes reviews every episode, I noticed that a couple of you did give me um, iTunes reviews, so that's pretty appreciated as well. Um, yeah, actually, while I'm on that, um, while I'm putting out all these episodes, like the next month or so, uh, that would be a really good time for reviews to help uh, sort of boost the profile of podcasts and get more people listening while there's more stuff coming out. So if you've been thinking, I will write a review at some point, uh, now would be a really good time. So yeah, reviews on iTunes would be appreciated as well. Right, this episode is uh, a book I've been on a book I've been meaning to do for ages. Um, it's about the dispossessed, written by Ashley Le Guin, who I've mentioned briefly uh, on the podcast before, um, which passed away recently. Who is, I think, a kind of unashamed utopian, a great science fiction writer, and a great utopian writer. So joining me on this episode to talk about the book is Sarah Lohman from the University of Durham. She works on, uh, she's working on feminist utopias, which ties in nicely to some of the things, some of the things of this book. You can, uh, you can find her on Twitter at Sarah Lohman if you want to have a look on there. It's spelled, uh, Lohman spelled L-O-H-M-A-N-N. 
And I would just say that this episode is quite a long conversation, so I've divided it into two parts. So this is part one of our conversation about the dispossessed. And in roughly a week, I'll be releasing part two. So you've got that to look forward to. And then, as I said, new schedule. There'll be another one like a week or so after that. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, glad to finally be back with an episode. Please think about checking out the Patreon. And here is my conversation with Sarah. Joining me now is Sarah Lohman. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Durham, um, working on feminist utopias. Thank you very much for joining me, Sarah. Sure. Um, so we are going to be talking today about Ursula Le Guin's 1974 novel, The Dispossessed, uh, with the subheading An Ambiguous Utopia. Um, I will, before we get into it, I'll try and give a bit of setup of the novel for anyone who's not familiar with it or people who might need a bit refreshing. So uh, this is a book about two different worlds, the worlds of Uras and Anaris. Uras is a capitalist society that's fairly similar to ours. It's pretty obviously meant to mirror uh, the society that we have um, on Earth. Anaris is an anarchist society founded by Odonians, or the followers of, of the teachings of Odo. Um, and they were allowed to leave Uras hundreds of years ago to kind of avert a revolution that was happening there. They were allowed to go to um, the moon of Uras, which is now an Uras, and start their own anarchist society. So this book is told from the perspective of Shevek, who's a physicist on Anares. It was kind of weird to call someone by a job role on that planet, which perhaps we'll um, explain a bit more about later. And through him, we learn about these two worlds cutting between his past where he effectively his life story on Anares, that's how we learn about that society and the present in which he's a visitor to Uras, the first visitor um to from Anares since since the society was formed i thought the i thought the first place we should start is um talking about the features of Anares as a utopia i think we might get into the ways that that's complicated perhaps later, later on but um i just wondered if you could uh, try and give us a, a brief overview of what this society is and kind of how it's structured. Yeah, so Anaris is uh, the moon of Eros, and uh, they've had 150 years to set up this anarcho-communist society based on the teachings of Odo, like you said. Um, but um, actually, Odo herself never um, got to experience this society because she she died before they ever really settled Anaris. But so it's basically it's entirely an ideological social experiment that's already quite mature because it's been running for 150 years. So so it's a really interesting entry point, I think, for the reader to to arrive at, because it's not we're not w witnessing the setting out of a, of a new society. We're witnessing a society that's already established, but quite different from its parent society. And we have this immediate comparison between the two. So like you were saying that um, U.S. is supposed to be similar to our own world, but I just wanted to say as well that um, our own world is actually, of course, also in the universe. Yeah. So there's Terra, which is a, a future version of our world, and um, and we do actually later on in the story meet an ambassador from Terra. Mm. So that's, that's a really interesting comparison as well because she tells us what has happened to that planet, and, and her opinion is, is quite interesting there. Her perspective is interesting. Yeah, so yeah, as, you, as you mentioned, kind of Broadly speaking, like anarchist or communist, so there's no government or authority technically. Like people are allowed to organise themselves into uh, like syndicates, which I guess you would broadly describe as like a cooperative or something. Yeah. And it's interesting that a lot of that stuff, the way we see it, it's like built into 
uh, built into the culture of Venaris. Like we see Shivak as a baby. He, he's been taught like nothing is yours. Like, oh, Shivak, you know, you, you know, you can't have things. Quite interesting. I thought the way it's kind of, you see it built into the culture. Yeah, exactly. So the, the whole, um, anarcho communist society of Venaris is based on the writings of people like, uh, Kropotkin and uh Lao Tzu and Paul Goodman and so these are these are all kind of um philosophers and um anarchist philosophers and, and thinkers who kind of were embraced by anti-authoritarian movements yeah and uh, Kropotkin in particular wrote a lot on anarcho-communism so basically uh Le Guin is just um this is this is her imagination of what a an anarcho anarcho-communist society would maybe look like in its purest form so you're absolutely right so it's about looking at how it would organize itself into groups that still, or systems that still run things to a certain extent, but doing all of that without any kind of um, hierarchy, or at least not not on purpose. It's not supposed to be there. Like there are still little hierarchies that develop, but um, in principle, it should be a flat society, society without um, without a government. And so, so the main principles, I think, that she's trying to realize here are what's what you could maybe see as like the three great enemies of freedom. So there's like the state, there's organized religion, and there's private property. And so none of those really exist here. And instead, the the whole society is based on the principle principle of mutual aid. Mm. But of course, like they do, um, and this is this is complicated. So in the in the text so for example like there are these we'll get to this later um there are these hierarchies that do establish themselves that are not intended that are, are based on like individuals wanting power or being afraid of things and um and then there is also to a, a small extent there is uh there is private property but really only just people you know picking up things here or there or making something very small and maybe taking it with them for a while but even when they do that like you can definitely tell that there's just not not that attachment there like they're not defining themselves at all through what they own mm. so stuff like yeah they they have like shivek is it shivek i don't know i think of him as shivek but whatever Shivak, sorry. <laughs> i think i'm yeah. pronouncing most of these terms so it doesn't really matter i don't know so shivek <laughs> shivek uh, for example has like an orange blanket yeah that he feels guilty yeah. about having so like it's never much stuff but things like housing yeah it's completely free you just if you want to, if you go to like a new town you just go to like a uh, an office of some kind and sign up and you could just move in yeah so they tend to be like dormitory spaces yeah. although you can also have like private spaces if you're in like a partnership which is the equivalent of marriage yeah although that is also like that is partnerships are recognized to a certain extent but then of course you um uh they also make it clear that um established partners do struggle sometimes with being posted to different places so it's not like a it's it's not automatically something that is accommodated yeah. in the system. It's something that, that might be accommodated, but nothing is guaranteed. Like, it's all just about the individual and what is needed in society at that point in time in terms of what they do. So usually they can follow their interests in terms of basically what, what job they have. But, um, but that takes a backseat to fulfilling the exact role that a society that the society needs at times of crisis in particular so for example if there's a drought and the planet is very prone to drought because it's it's just very barren and doesn't grow very much and has a very harsh climate um then people are uh posted to positions where they'll have to um be in a very particular job whether they want to or not yeah so that fit kind of highlights that you've already mentioned that like collectivity is very important in this society mm -hmm. like 
individual freedom is there but, but people like the social obligation is always there as well so yeah as there's that, that balance there as you say in times of disaster you kind of people tend to aren't, aren't forced to they kind of self um like yeah. they, they have it inbuilt to them they are a debt to other people so they will do difficult work and go where they're needed but generally speaking like in in times of non-crisis you can you can do what you want like in terms of work you can go where you want you can they they say that um so efficiency is not important at all on and, and well no, i wouldn't say not important at all but they don't organize themselves around efficiency in the way that uh capitalist society would or a neoliberal neoliberal society would stay because they move around jobs a lot they everybody does dangerous jobs undesirable jobs so they usually do it for like six months or so which obviously isn't that efficient because you're always getting new people like learning what they've got to do but that's not the most important thing in this society most of the time yeah absolutely and there's also what's also interesting is that people take on for example manual labor and they they would never look down on a particular kind of work because um because they all do these different kinds of work at different times so you would never have a situation where someone for example has a particular kind of education and then would look down on people who perform manual labor and wouldn't do it themselves um so so there's very much just this this idea that um, a society requires certain things to function and everyone just pitches in and does those things. And even if you have a career within a certain field, for example, as, as Shevik does as a physicist, like you are, you're not, you're never too good for any other kind of work mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's very egalitarian in that sense too, that no, no job is better than another job. And, and then ideally also then within the uh, within, for example, the academic communities that they do have, technically no one is above anyone else, and everyone just kind of uh, works together. Although in practice, of course, it doesn't it doesn't quite always work out like that. But uh, but that's the idea behind mm. it. One other thing on on work I, I thought was interesting. It's kind of so you can do what you want, but there's kind of people also. It's also managed by like a computer system. Yeah. So people would tend to like put themselves into the pool and the system. Say, I'm ready to do. Or I'd like to do this type of work, or I'm ready to do any type of work, whatever you want. And the computer is meant to be standing as like a neutral system. It just made me think of like how Silicon Valley people view like computer systems as as like the solution for everything now, which perhaps mm. makes that look a bit naive now. I don't know. Like this idea that computers are inherently neutral. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But you can you can tell that they've kind of just done their best to um, outsource. Uh, this decision making to well basically you know if, if it was a more modern utopia it might be an ai or something like that but like they're yeah. definitely doing their best to just like take out this element of 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 people choosing um things for other people so it's just they're they're trying to make it as as automatic and, and kind of random as possible and of course then you have that with um with personal names as well that those are chosen by a computer and um and then they only have one name, right? They don't have a first and a last name. And there's only ever one person alive with a particular name. So you, you don't have any confusion there. And um, and that's interesting because to my mind, of course, um, you know, I, I would see that as not um, part of being really free as an individual to, to just be given a name. But at the same time, it's it's a that is actually a very efficient system, I think. And it is completely impersonal and no one can complain. And also, again, there's absolutely no stigma attached to having any particular kind of name there's no indication that you come from a particular social background there's mm. no indication that you're a certain age there's all of that just doesn't apply like they're literally just 
ways to identify people. And it's just, a, I guess, a more personal way of, um, you know, they could also be using numbers, but it's just slightly more personal than that. Mm. Uh, obviously, we already mentioned you're, you're working on like feminist utopias. Would you say that it's fair to call this society like feminist or equal or however you'd want to yeah yeah so okay so i work on feminist utopias like um marge piercy's woman on the edge of time and joanna russ's the female man and um and i'm actually also including the dispossessed in my analysis now given that it's um so so basically the novels that i mentioned along with the dispossessed and also um, Samuel Delaney's uh, Triton or Turbo on, on Triton. They're all seen as, uh, well, they're officially categorized as critical utopias by uh, Tom Moylan. And, um, and all of them have in common, well, maybe Triton to a lesser extent, so I'm, I'm not actually including it in my, my analysis, but the other three definitely have a society that is basically, um, that has basic equality between the genders and uh or between the sexes and that's a really important element of what makes these um societies utopian so what what tom moylan says is that they um are able to be very critical of our own world in that they address um all the kind of social inequalities and difficulties that we currently have because we haven't sorted out um social justice and um, so basically, he says that they are kind of they're very useful um, utopian imaginings because they actually address what's wrong in our current world. They don't just kind of explore what would be nice to have. So like some traditional utopias from maybe like the turn of the century, the fin de siècle, like um, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward or um, William Morris's News from Nowhere, they see themselves as socialists, but they kind of just... Um, they make an attempt at creating more or less equal societies as, as part of their socialism, but they don't really ever do it from the perspective of those people who would need a utopia, those people who are currently marginalized. And so it ends up actually being a very unequal system in those cases. And but what the critical utopians do is they very much pay attention to equality and they very much just have these, these very equal societies in the end. And um, so, so yeah, I would definitely call this a feminist utopia. What's different about this one compared to um, Woman on the Edge of Time and The Female Man is that the main protagonist is a man. And, um, and that's actually something that Tom Moylan criticizes in Demand the Impossible. So he thinks it's not quite as feminist a, a book as it thinks it is. But... I, uh, I I think I would maybe agree that maybe some of the, the female characters in the story aren't quite as, uh, don't play as big a role as they could maybe, but at the same time, it is absolutely the case in the society that women are absolutely equal to men. And I also think that uh, equality, especially um, equality between the sexes, is a, a very major difference that uh, Shevik notices between Anaris and then Eurus when he visits. So that's something that we're made very aware of that um, that he asks explicitly, he asks his his doctor on, on the journey over about uh, women in, in their society and he just learns very quickly that women are just completely marginalized on Eurus or just uh, aren't even, you know, um, able to have certain jobs and and are also just exploited and, and wear clothing that's that's very kind of objectifying and um, yeah and, and and definitely aren't allowed to be part of the scientific community um, yeah. and which is of course a big deal for Shevik. So so yeah so the the feminism of Anaris and the sexism of Euros is a major point in the book. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the the first thing he um, mentions or notices when he gets there as well to the um, yeah. university. Like he, yeah. So as you say, um, so on on his world, obviously, they, he says there's no no distinction between men's work and women's work, and you people do what they want according to their strengths, their talents, what they're interested in. And he says to like the doctor, what what is what sex got to do with that? There's machines to compensate for strength. Like we we have those, that doesn't yeah. matter. But um it's quite an effective question. Like when he I think he asks like where are all the women? Like when he's yeah. at the university, which is quite an effective question, not just for like for us as the reader as well, because we might be used to reading books where all the characters are men and we might be used to an educational context where if you've been to university in like um, things like physics or computer science quite often tend to be dominated by men. So it's something that you might not even notice as you're reading the book. And like yeah. his questions like, where are all the women? Like it's something that you might not have uh, clocked onto with the reader yeah. as well, if you know what oh, I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's very estranging to see Euros through uh, Shevik's perspective because he, um, not only does he have this very different background, but um he also is um, just because they they speak very clearly on on Anaris. Like their their language, Pravik is is very direct, and they also have this very direct attitude. So he has absolutely no qualms, just like asking very directly, like "Where are all the women? Women? Like what's what's going on here? Like I find this weird." Like he doesn't have any kind of um, uh, notion of politeness that he wouldn't bring that up. So it's a it's a very good way of kind of just pointing out those differences in um, within the narrative. And um, I just wanted to say as well, um, in terms of Anaris being very um, egalitarian. So, of course, Odo founded Anaris. So that in itself, I think, is already like, you know, the the protagonist is male. Fair enough. But at least um, everything that he uh, that he believes in and that he knows and that he ends up really supporting is based on the, the writings of a female academic. Mm. And um, and then also, I think what's what's really central to to the feminism of, of the utopian society, which you also get in things like um, Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time and um, Joanna Russ's The Female Man, is that women aren't burdened by, um, for example, childcare responsibilities that are often kind of unacknowledged even in other utopias, where even in other utopias that try to be in some way egalitarian, they often still make childcare and child rearing and childbirth all very much the domain of of women mm. and here it's it's made very clear that so there's no kind of sometimes there's this technology that you might have breeding technology like women on the edge of time um or you know like and men breastfeeds children there as well so there's all sorts of ways of doing things differently on a bi biological level but here it's it's just on the level of the society that children very quickly uh, leave the parental home and are and sleep in dormitories and um, and just automatically just have this very comprehensive education that is also in itself gender neutral. So they they do all sorts of things that prepare them for the real world, but that is not in any way linked to what gender they are. So um, so it might sound like a very small thing, but I think that is um, one element that really just opens up uh, societal participation for both men and women mm. in this utopia. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting element, actually, because I think a lot of the stuff in the society in the society would generally be like someone on the, someone who's like on the left or tends to be more to the left would be quite uh, open to a lot of this stuff. I suspect 
people might be a bit like the the, the way that families and um, childcare is dealt with. I feel like some people might be a bit more unsure about that element because, as you say, the children are uh, tend to be um, out of the parents' hands quite early. Like yeah. it's to do. Also, they have this this very open idea towards like so that their word for mum or dad in in their language is uh, applicable to like any adult like there's they don't have they don't necessarily have a dad they could rec- refer to multiple male people that perform a kind of parent role as dad yeah and... tade isn't it is the word i think yes that's right yeah, yes. yeah. And, and like being the as we, the, the protagonist that we're talking about he we see that he's he has a much close relationship with his father than his mother so that's yeah. kind of the first sign that it's the, perhaps more equal but yeah most children go into these like I suppose like a part dormitory, part school, as you said, quite yeah. early. And I feel people might be a bit less like open to that, like the children not being growing up with you. Well, I think um, so. This, so what I initially when I read um, The Dispossessed for the first time, um, I really I like the idea of just like exploring um, an anarchist society in detail. But the one thing that and I always kind of think about utopias in terms of, oh, would I want to live there? You know, and um, and the one thing that actually really put me off was the um, was their living situations. So yeah. I don't I really don't think that I would want to spend basically my whole life living in shared housing where even if you're a couple or a family you basically have to share a room and it's just it's just all very basic and I also like my little creature comforts and just you know having like <laughs> you know nice furnishings and things but also just the fact that you just um you basically just give up your children to society very early on and uh, but I think that that's it's an interesting one because so you know we even if it's a bit later, like, um, in, in most societies, like people do actually send their children to school, um, at a similar age, like maybe they, they'll still be living at home. But then again, you know, in the UK, for example, there are boarding schools. And so I think that's not actually that different from our society. And, um, and also what you have to keep in mind, I think as well, is that like with all of these conventions on Anaris, like it's, it's made explicit over and over again, that you can choose not to participate. And yeah, sure. you can choose to, for example, you know, build your own house somewhere and just live there and still participate in society in whatever way you want to. Like, it's it's all open to you. It's just that it's easiest for people to basically, um, you know, conform to the system and in these various ways. And, you know, at some point, even at the very end, um, Takver, Shevik's uh, partner, suggests that, you know, if, if things uh, go very badly for them. They could always just like uh, move away from town and like form their own little anarchist community within Anaris. So that is also absolutely an option. So like none of these things you really have to conform to. Or um, at one point, uh, Shevik's daughter gets gets bullied um, because of her um, because what her what her father has been doing, and um, and he's seen as a traitor. And she and they decide to just take her out of the dormitory. So that's fine. And like no one would no one would say that they can't do that. There's nothing you can't do. The only uh, rebuke that you would get is is to um, have people basically frown on you, frown yeah, sure. on your actions. That's the only thing that can happen. Yeah, with the um, you've, I think you're right with the the living situation, like the because I also would not like to like spend all my time in these shared dormitories and stuff. But I think that's quite. That's something I quite like about the book. It's quite like, it's quite provocative in terms of thinking. Yeah. It's kind of saying like, look, this is a collective society, a shared society where that 
it, it, every that's all embedded like on like a cultural level like a natural level yeah. so that is necessarily the kind of the idea is if you want this kind of collective society maybe you will have to deal with this if you if yeah what I mean. but also i think um yeah absolutely so it's it's a decision that they've made communally to begin with although of course like none of the people living there at this point in time were alive when that communal decision was made but they're still choosing to stick to it and I wanted to get back to this later, but they're sticking to this promise that Odo made to begin with, that they would, you know, promise each other to to live communally and respect each other as a community and and make that work. And they've just chosen to to go along with that all of these years. And um, so the the only way that they're um, again that they kind of enforce that is by um, just basically criticizing people who um, who you know egoize uh, or you know like that's that's what they. Uh, that's the term they use for people who um, who are acting in a way that that seems selfish or not um, not for the benefit of the community. And um, but I but because I think they've just made this decision and they just um, and they think it's it's something that's worth uh, it's a principle that's uh, that's worth living by because it's uh, because it's so valuable. I think they just they get into these habits that um, actually probably wouldn't even be that difficult to maintain if that's what you grew up with. So for example, this, uh, you know, just like not holding on to personal possessions. Um, I think that, I mean, it looks really harsh to, you know, look at how they, they live in these small cramped rooms and, and they, you know, barely own anything. But then if you think about it, like maybe the room wouldn't be seen as small and cramped if actually you don't have stuff to fill it. And, um, and like maybe, you know, if you value community above selfishness, then maybe it would make you quite happy to have people right next door. And that would be more important to you than to have a little bit more space. And mm-hmm. also, if you just never got used to um, owning things and dragging them along with you, then you might just you might really value being able to move quickly, for example, over holding on to certain belongings. And I think I actually you mentioned the um, the orange blanket earlier. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really nice little symbol for um or not a symbol but a uh um a little recurring indicator of how they think about possessions so so it's kind of like we as readers get a little bit attached to this orange blanket because it kind of is um it's like the the one bit of like home furnishing that Chevig actually owns and he kind of he takes it with him it's the only thing that he kind of holds on to and then at the very end he doesn't bring it with him i think in the end when he when he again moves in with his partner and she says, and she asks him where it is, and she's actually a bit sad. And um, and she says, oh, it's the first blanket that we slept under together. And he says, uh, oh no, there was there was probably a different one, and it doesn't really matter. And I think it's that's actually quite nice because like even that one thing that we've been holding on to as readers as like his one possession, even that is gone. And but then what he, but then we see that it was important to attack for because it in some way. Um, she associated it with their relationship, but without that object, all we have left to focus on is their relationship. And that's kind of nice. Again, it's just like this, again, it's, it's just made clear that it's all about relationships. It's all about, uh, what we do together and how we, how we act towards other people rather than like what we surround ourselves with. Yeah, sure. So I went to ask you, um, something that you mentioned to me when we were emailing these that you were working on. Something you're working on with feminist utopias is complex feminist utopias with complexity yeah. theory. Um, I googled it, but like, I don't really understand what it is. So perhaps you could explain a bit about um, yeah. that and how that relates to this. Yeah, totally. So um, 
so again, um, Anaris is um, an equal society, right? On on paper, that's how it that's how it functions. Is that people, the the basic um, setup is that everyone is equal, and everyone also takes on different jobs at different points in time to help the society function, right? And there is no hierarchy, there is no top down government. It's all bottom up. It's just completely flat, right? Mm-hmm. And um, okay, so in my in my thesis. Um, I was looking at these a few of these feminist utopias, like the ones I mentioned before, and I was thinking about how they are able to kind of really like model um, a a better um, egalitarian society in a way that's not static but actually dynamic and sustainable. And um, and I noticed both in well actually in the dispossessed as well in terms of the narrative structure, but also especially in uh, Woman on the Edge of Time and The Female Man, that there's actually a lot going on um, on the the level of the narrative structure in terms of there's a lot of time travel, there's a lot of jumping back and forth, and also the utopias themselves aren't just like straightforwardly perfect, also they're not guaranteed in, in the future, they maybe won't necessarily happen, they're maybe like on a strand of probability that may or may not come about, and I was just thinking about um, why it's all so kind of torn up in that way, why you've got so much movement. And I was talking about this with my supervisor and we were talking about systems theory and she she brought up complexity theory. And then I realized that actually um, one way of understanding both this kind of um, uh, very kind of disrupted structure and also the inherent dynamism of these societies is by seeing them or reading them as examples of complex adaptive systems. And those are and like described by complexity theorists like Mark C. Taylor or Paul Silliers or Ilya Prigogine, um, they, these are systems that are that have lots of different elements to them that all work together, and um, but they're always open and in a state of constant ad- adaptation, and they're also like completely flat. So no one's running them. They just they just run themselves. They're self-organizing and self-optimizing. So they will always tend towards. Um, the best possible system of interaction, and um, but they're not just complicated in that they have lots of elements. They're actually complex in that their interactions can't be understood just by analyzing the components. So you couldn't like slice through it or kind of pause the system and understand it by looking at it in that way. Like it can only ever be understood as something that is already in motion, that's always changing. So what's really interesting to me about complex adaptive systems is that they are necessarily always dynamic in that they're, um, they're balanced at a point that's uh, called either far from equilibrium or at the edge of chaos, where, um, where this, this drive happens, where there's always this, this shift and change towards self-organization. So they, just, they, they cannot be static because if they were static, they would die. They just, they just couldn't survive. So it's very much kind of um, non-linear behavior. It's it's unpredictable, but it's it's dynamic, and because it's dynamic, it's sustainable. Oh wait, here there's a, there's a good quote on on this this point far from equilibrium that I mentioned. So Sillier says a self-organizing system will try to balance itself at a critical point between rigid order and chaos, which she calls the point of criticality, and and that's where it where it forms itself, where it keeps kind of dynamically developing. Yeah, and also, so so on the one hand, this is really interesting for an egalitarian society, like as a model for trying to understand an egalitarian society, because a complex system has to be completely flat for um, 
different so that because it, it works through feedback relations right and um so certain um relations establish themselves between different elements in the system and if they work then they're reinforced and if they don't then that connection just drops and and the different elements take on different roles depending on um where the feedback relations are particularly strong or where new ones need to be um created and um but this this taking on of new roles can only happen if it's already a flat system right so if you had a hierarchy then that would be too rigid then you wouldn't be able to get that element from from a point higher up to elsewhere so it has to be completely flat already and then also it's not just so the the difference between that and um and a homeostatic system like for example a thermostat that's always just that's just trying to maintain balance so that in itself would also be a form of rigidity right if it was just a system that was in motion but not really going anywhere so just kind of just balancing itself out constantly that that's not sustainable because that's not reacting to change that's not incorporating change and instead i think a, a utopian complex system also has positive feedback relations um in that uh these relations amplify tendencies and produce change so you've got you've got certain feedback relations that because they're just uh they're just allowed to happen within the system they might very well produce something uh produce the kind of unpredictable emergence of something that just wasn't anticipated but that happens to be part of the system and help the system work better and um and that's just then part of how it works but it's it's just again like it's it's unpredictable but because this kind of change is already um incorporated it's it's not going to disrupt the system it's only going to make it stronger so for example in like i was saying that um in terms of having an egalitarian and feminist society that um for example woman on the edge of time has a breeding technology so i'd say that that is an example of of something that's completely new that has emerged um from the the utopian feedback relations in the society and um and it's not necessarily something that the people of the society wanted or planned for or anything it's just it just happened because it works well for that society and then it's part of that utopia and um and so for example the ansible so this instantaneous communication system that is developed later on based on shevik's work in um in physics and um uh, temporality that i would say is uh one of these um unexpected emergent properties of of this utopia that reacts to change and um but then is very much part of this world because that's what the system called for does that make sense yeah sure no, it's interesting both so this idea that egalitarianism is necessarily built into this uh, these complex systems but also it's inherently utopian right because if you think of a utopia having to be dynamic and open to change then which I think is what he hoped he would be, or was able to incorporate and, and evolve um, adapt change, and that's obviously what a complex system can do. And I think the, the book in what it's telling you about Anares almost suggests that it's Shivak Shivak. Sorry, whatever, however you pronounce the name. Um, he what he's doing is um, disruptive to the society and being um, some people are, are resisting it, and it's kind of a question about whether. He talked about a system that's just trying to maintain balance. So there's a kind of question of whether this is an hours is just going to try and retain balance or whether Shivak is going to be able to do what he's trying to do and the society is going to be open to change and 
yeah remain like a complex system i guess you would yeah, say yeah, so absolutely so i think there's so homeostasis is also definitely part of the system for example this posting system that they have through through their general uh, pdc is it um yeah. that is that's explicitly called homeostatic and that that's just trying to kind of maintain um a balance of you know where people are working at what point in time and uh, so that's absolutely part of it and that's just that's kind of how the society survives but the only way it can be utopian is by also having these positive feedback relations and shevek himself is is absolutely part of that so he kind of symbolizes the emergence of the genuinely new and the genuinely utopian and so the fact that he's trying to still be part of society and and move society forward himself is is indicative of his role as this this positive utopian force within the system that has to be incorporated for the system to survive so by by um excluding people like shevik and his and his work um that that is how um anaris could um could cease to um well to work at all and certainly not to exist as a utopia so that's there's this constant thing about um like it already being like attempting to be utopian but then also needing to incorporate change and and draw on change and make that part of its its reality in order to survive in order to progress so that's really i think the the core of um what uh, the the role that shevik plays and um that he sees himself as playing um oh i just wanted to say sorry he also um just in terms of anaris as a as a complex system um so he also says things like that coercion is the least efficient means of obtaining order so it's very much this um so that's him comparing anaris to eurus so it's very much this idea that you can like not only is it um you know nice for the people involved to have a society that is uh that is equal and that um that has um a way of functioning um in which people can more or less choose what they want to do but it's also the most actually the most efficient way of doing things um because it's um it's not kind of held back by these arbitrary walls that people build for whatever reasons for you know personal selfish reasons or because they want to control other people etc and then ultimately like the the ideal is that you have this system that is that's alive so 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 the terran ambassador later on she she says that from a terran perspective she sees eurus as alive but um but it's not compared to the the genuine sustainable dynamism of somewhere like anaris so at one point i think shevig is talking about the pdc meetings and how he says it's more of a slab of raw beef compared to a wiring diagram but then he says but raw beef uh functions better than a wiring diagram would in its place which is inside a living animal so again even though it might be a a process that's um that might take a little bit longer or you were saying earlier it's just it might not be super efficient in that you know people take on different jobs and maybe need to be trained every time etc it's still um it's still alive it's still at least it's not it's not rigid it it kind of it's able to sustain itself dynamically because of the way that it's set up even if that means paying for it in terms of efficiency within like particular sections mm -hmm. um so yeah so i thought that was a, that was an interesting little quote there yeah sure so um one of the other things you mentioned was like um temporality in this yeah. or utopian time so what was uh, what was that aspect yeah, of it yeah absolutely then? absolutely yeah so um there's this really interesting link that's that's i think also just really central to uh to this book between 
anarchy and and how that works on Anaris, and then also Shevik's um, work in physics, which is about temporality. And um, and I think both of those kind of come down to um, dynamism and 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 complexity and just understanding how something can function does and can function in a way that is holistically understood and and self-sustaining and there's there's also this idea of permanent revolution that um uh that underlies um the anarchism of um anaris and i think that um to a certain extent shevik um, personifies that revolution uh, with his his ideas in physics and his his work in physics can be seen as kind of a both a um, a parallel a metaphor for what's happening um, in terms of the the politics of Anaris versus Eurus and and also the two literally kind of like his ideas on anarchy and his ideas on physics physics literally support each other and reinforce each other so. Um, um, yeah, so I just wanted to talk about that briefly, if that's okay. Okay, so just as a background, a uh, bit of background information, Shevik is working on, while the story happens, he's working on a general temporal theory that combines two different ways of um, looking at time. So there's sequency physics and there's simultaneity physics. So the one sees uh, time as as something that uh, kind of just moves forward and that moves from the past through the present to the future. And the other sees time as kind of already existing and, and being uh, real, like every point in time already being real. And yeah, so he actually describes it as, so sequency could be seen as like a rock being thrown, moving from the past again to the future. Um, and then, um, but then he already as a, as a child, he kind of, uh, realizes why uh, this is the dominant theory um, in physics in uh, both on Anaris and Eurus uh, at this point in time. But even when he's quite young, he realizes that, realizes that that's not really a that that can't really work because um, so for example, if a rock is thrown, it can never really reach a tree reach the tree because of Zeno's paradox that it only ever um, you know, gets uh, within a certain period of time, it'll get like halfway to the tree and then halfway again and then halfway again. So it'll never actually reach the tree. Yeah, and yeah. so, so basically, um, for most of his adult life, then Shevik has been working on this, um, simultaneity theory of time. And he describes it to some people on Eurus as, um, like reading a book, uh, where you, um, time is the book and we're we're reading it but we can only ever see a part of it we can only read one page of it at a time but it's still already all there to begin with so um again he explains on Eurus that sequency explains our sense of linear time and evolution as well and it includes creation and mortality but it can't explain why things also endure it can't explain the circle of time and then he um they ask him about what the what the circle of time is, and he says, well, time goes in cycles as well as in a line. He says, a planet revolving, you see? One cycle, one orbit around the sun is a year, and two orbits, two years, and so on. You can count the cycles endlessly, uh, and that's, in fact, how we count time. But within the system, the cycle, where is time? Where is the beginning or end? Infinite repetition is an atemporal process. 
And later he says, uh, so it's, it's actually the tiny time reversible cycles of the atom that give matter enough permanence that evolution is possible. So you can only have the linearity of time if you also have these cycles of time. He says the little timelesses added together make up time. Um, only within each of the great cycles where we live, only there is there linear time evolution and change. So basically he says that time has these two aspects. There's the the arrow, the running river, with when, within which there is no change, no progress, or direction, or creation, and there's the circle or the cycle without which there is chaos, meaningless succession of instants, a world without clocks or seasons or promises. Promises is a word that I'm going to come back to, but I think he he nicely kind of sets out um, these um, these two ways of looking at time. But then um, his the the crux of his career is where he realizes is his general temporal theory where he realizes that both of those are necessary to our understanding of time and we can only understand time if we take on both of these ways of of seeing it and um yeah and actually there's a there's a paper called um embodied anarchy in ursula k Guin's the dispossessed that kind of nicely explains that in terms of the logic of complementarity so um daniel jekley i'm not sure how to pronounce his name he says that uh, he compares this, like the, these two ways of seeing one thing, um, to, for example, you know the, the the rabbit duck drawing that you know if you look at it one way it looks like a rabbit, if you look at it a different way it looks like a duck. Yeah. Um, but he says that that is what complementarity is. So the use of two seemingly incompatible perspectives in order to see the wholeness of some slice of reality, and um, so he says that that's a particular form of containing difference within unity. And so it's, he says its power rests on its ability not to diminish the integrity of either interpretation, but bring both ways of seeing into a whole. And um, so you're missing something if you only look at it, uh, look at this particular thing in one way, um, even though you can't necessarily understand both ways of, under of, of seeing whatever it is at one point in time, they're still both absolutely necessary for our, a deeper understanding of whatever it is. And so then in Shevik's work, this applies to time itself. Uh, yeah, so he has this realization that um, both of these viewpoints are necessary, both sequency and simultaneity, and he says that that is, um, he uses the concept of interval to connect the static and the dynamic aspects of the universe, and he, he says, um, like, there, there would be no trouble in going there at all, and indeed he had already gone on, he was there, and so this is this nice kind of realization that he has that it's not again like that he's already that like you know all times exist concurrently so he's both within a point where he has um uh along a linear sequence of events arrived at a point where he has made this discovery but also it was already there because all times already exist so he's kind of like suddenly locating himself at this point in time that combines both uh linearity and cyclicality and um and then he has a sense of wholeness um so he it says uh, the wall was down the vision was both clear and whole what he saw was simple simpler than anything else it was simplicity and contained in it all complexity all promise it was revelation so again it's this it's this essential dynamism and it's it's the literally the complexity of reality in which works uh, in which things work together in a particular way without coercion because that's just that's how they interlink and uh, there's also a paper by uh, Teresa Tavarmina where she points out that 
the fact that he's looking for a unified general theory of time is also um, can be seen as a, a metaphor for unity, working together, communication, and the complexity underlying that. Again, so um, so this this idea of of wholeness and um, of coming together and of you know seeing the world as it really is, but also this kind of moral sense of um, everyone playing a part in in reality and especially in how a society should be run. Hmm. Um, sorry, that's a lot just now. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's kind of there in the the structure of the novel as well, right? like complementary perspectives or like different yeah. perspectives, both in terms of the two planets, but also I think you're meant to take a different perspective. You can see different perspectives on on the way that the society is structured. Like it encourages yeah. you to see. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, actually, so there's another thing I wanted to say, and that is that um, Jacqueline, this in his um, paper, he also talks about, um, so his thing is complementarity, right? So he says that sequency and simultaneity are complementary, but in the same way as a parallel in the novel, uh, these, the bringing these, these two things together, um, that is also mirrored in Shevik wanting to bring together two other ideas, and that's um, the idea of individual freedom and social responsibility within the um, anarchist system of Anaris. So these are two things that he's kind of struggling with at the same time, these two ideas within physics, but then also these, these two ideas within, within how Anaris is run as a society, where he kind of constantly is, um, you know, he's defending the way that it's run. He wants to live his life um, in, uh, at the service of the community, but at the same time he keeps being ostracized because he, he's doing things differently. And even within this... Uh, this utopia where there's not meant to be any hierarchy, there are always people who are kind of in his way and that just are, aren't even particularly interested in his work. And so so there's this, his individual freedom is not really given enough space. And he's kind of thinking about how it's even possible to have this individual freedom, but also the social responsibility. Yeah, sure. Because he, de he definitely doesn't want to like lose that collective aspect but yeah absolutely absolutely so he's kind of trying to unify these two things but so in the same way that you can see time as both linear and cyclical you can also see this question of individual freedom versus social responsibility uh, this is what Jekla says as as also having two aspects that you can understand at the same time so there's the moral one so how does a person act in complete freedom and yet for the mutual aid of others and then there's the political one how does an anarchist negotiate the needs both of the individual and the group because um, so if there's no if there are no laws on Anaris except for the single principle of mutual aid between individuals and there's no government but the single principle of free association which is what Shevik says then how can you act in a way that is both an interest uh, in the interest of a group and according to your individual freedom and how can you assure that that's that that's what happens without being constrained yourself or vice versa. And um, so then Shevig, just like he has this breakthrough with the, the general temporal theory of seeing um, time as two things at once, he also has this breakthrough through of seeing individual freedom as actually vital to, to fulfilling one's social obligation. So um, there's this bit where he says um, he... So he suddenly he recognized that need to be himself in Adonian terms as his cellular function, the analogic, sorry, analogic term for the individual's individuality, the work he can do best, therefore his best contribution to society. A healthy society would let him exercise that optimum function freely, for though only the society could give security and stability, only the individual, the person, had the power of moral choice. 
the power of change, the essential function of life. The Odonian society was conceived as a permanent revolution, and revolution begins in the thinking mind. So again, there's this, if you look at it as a complex system, you know, Odonian society in this case, then um, you need to have um, this openness for um, change that occurs, that occurs naturally and organically within the system, and you need to give it the, the space to thrive and to and to naturally um, enter into feedback relations uh, with other elements in the system. And so, and again, Shevik is kind of personifying um, this, this impulse for change and newness and, um, and growth within the system. So he, he has the, he just happens to be a point at which the, um, the system could, um, could change in a good way, but the system itself has to be open to that. Like it needs to listen to him. It needs to let him do his thing because that's what he's good at, because that's his rule within the society. So, um, at certain points, it seems like society is trying to exclude him because he's doing things differently, but really he is part of what makes the society work ideally. So that's kind of what he's, what he's trying to do is to be an agent of change within the system and to push the boundaries of the system so that ultimately everyone can benefit from his work. So, you know, ultimately what he comes back with, what his work leads to is the development of the Ansible for instantaneous communication that's faster than the speed of light. And that is something that will then benefit not only his world, but all known worlds. And he's, and that's a massive gift that he's giving back. And that is a, that is a utopian outgrowth, again, in terms of the emergence of the genuinely new that came from his work that in itself came from his background as a member of this Adonian anarchist society. But it could only be realized because he was able to do his work within the system to fulfill his organic cellular function, as he says. So, so that in itself is very important for the system to actually uh, function at all, to have that dynamism again. Yeah, it's very interesting. And like, yeah, um, even the question of whether his society is up to that, like, even though it does have hostility, ultimately, the way it's structured means it can't stop him, like, when he decides to go to Uras, because there's no authority to, like, say, yeah. no, you're not allowed. <laughs> ultimately, yeah. he can do, even if he, even though he faced, faces hostility, and it is difficult, the society, because of the way it's structured, does allow him to, like, push through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And like, all they can do is, you know, follow him to the spaceport and throw rocks at him, but they can't actually stop him from going. And yeah. Um, and there's, there's also just wanted to say that Jekla as well, even though he doesn't, he doesn't think of things in terms of um, complexity, but I think, you know, it works really well with, with his idea of complementarity. But so he does say that, um, that Shevik's general theory of time does also support the complementarity of his view of anarchy. And that, um, he sees uh, the act of promising as a way to uh, believe in the flow of time and the um, and also the the reality of all different times at any given point. And um, there's this nice quote. Sorry, one second. Uh, like we were saying earlier, that there's this promise um, at the at the heart of Adonian society, and this this kind of promise to look out for the community. And it says here, Odo came to see the promise, the pledge, the idea of fidelity as essential in the complexity of freedom. So again, there's this word complexity, which is nice. <laughs> and um, so there's always there's this promise to always return to the founding principles of Anaris in that way. And so what Jekyll says is that 
promising um, is by promising you believe in um, the past and you believe in the future. And for the duration of the promise, you believe in the present. So you need to have basically a four-dimensional view of reality in order to believe in the promise that underlies Anaris. So Odo says that, uh, you know, that you have to keep returning to these founding principles. Um, but then there's this other nice quote as you can go home again, so long as you understand that home is a place where you have never been. So because everything is, is constantly ideally renewing itself, if you give um, this complex system the space to be dynamic and to renew itself, then even if you, you do come back to this basic promise of, um, of how, how it's meant to be, of how you've laid it out so that it's, it's at the service of the community, it'll still not necessarily look the way that you expected it to look um, because it's constantly changing. Mm. And also, just in terms of four-dimensionality, uh, has um, Shevik actually mentions Einstein, or he's called Einstein <laughs> in, in the language that they use. Um, but so he, he talks, so he, when he comes, um, when he's developing his general theory of time, um, he is helped by the fact that he looks at Einstein's work and he realizes that Einstein actually failed to prove his unified field theory. And um, in the same way, Shevik then decides to not even try to prove the hypothesis of the coexistence of sequency and simultaneity, but instead to just assume that they coexist, which is then this complementarity. So Einstein actually um, is an important impulse for him to to make his, his final um, mental leap in developing this his theory, uh, his unified theory. But also, um, what's interesting is that an Einsteinian worldview, in fact, presupposes four-dimensionality, and um, so does um, Shevek's uh, general temporal theory, because you need to, so in order to have this cyclicality of time, you need to, again, you need to assume that, um, that all time is equally real at any point. And... Um, yeah, so he actually also says to the Terran ambassador later on, uh, you don't understand what time is. So she's saying that she she's come from Terra, which is now ruined, and they don't have any hope for the future. And all they can really see is, you know, how much better Uras is because it's kind of like how Terra used to be in that it was, you know, it's, it's a, you know, super capitalist, exploitative society, but at least it hasn't destroyed itself, right? So she's going back to the past. But what he says to her, and, and she's saying, like, the idea of Anaris means nothing to the people of Terra because they just can't even imagine having a society that's so different. It seems so far in the future to them that they can't even engage with it. All they can imagine is maybe going back to their own past. Um, but then what he says to her is, you don't understand what time is. You say the past is gone, the future is not real, there is no change, no hope. You think Anaris is a future that cannot be reached as your past cannot be changed. And then he says, but you, you can't even have the present unless you accept with it the past and the future. So, uh, so again, just this, this coexistence of all times as kind of essential to, um, to, to having any kind of forward movement even. Like you can only really, so in his mind, you can only really move towards a future if you acknowledge that the present and the past exist, and, uh, but that they all come together in certain ways to to create reality and to make reality in itself uh, malleable. I'm avoiding going off on too much of a tangent, but perhaps ties, ties in nicely. Um, I don't know if the two quite play together, but I don't know if you, you're particularly familiar with uh, Frederick Jameson, but um, he obviously has this idea that kind of the, the problem with 
politics to today or like the way society is structured is it's lost this idea of history like the, mm -hmm. the anti-utopian impulse we have is like a fundamentally like anti-historical one like we need like a concept of history to be able to think utopia so i don't know perhaps it ties in a bit oh, yeah, no, totally. And um, and I think that's also one reason why um, The Dispossessed and, and also um, a couple other novels are critical utopias in that they um, they don't just look towards the future. They don't just look towards what could be different. They actually look towards you know what needs to be different. And for that, you need to look at the present. But they also um, have the courage to look back at our own past and um, and, and also and like not only see you know what went wrong there what traps we could fall into again but also try and understand our past differently in terms of just uh, employing different viewpoints so for example if you're trying to create a society that's better for everyone then you might be looking at the past in terms of social change that was created not just by the people who were in charge but also um, just like how communities have worked together at different points of, in time and also you know marginalized communities and so basically you're you're reinterpreting the past while you're using the present to create a better future, right? So again, it's like all of these times have to exist in your mind for you to create something that's like genuinely um, better or, you know, worth working with. So absolutely, like history, history is important, the present is important, the future is important. You can't isolate, isolate any of those and still have any kind of sustainability. So that is the end of part one of this conversation on The Dispossessed. Part two will be out, um, let's say, a week at the most. I might release it sooner. I don't know. But yeah, in that second part, we'll discuss some more stuff like uh, we hinted in this bit. You may have noticed that we kept talking about how things are supposed to work in principle and how there might be some complications in that. Well, we'll return to that and talk about imperfection and utopia and, and what the value of that might be. We'll talk a bit about use of perspective um, estrangement and some other bits so uh yeah please uh come back to to this to that second part again one more time please uh think about checking out the patreon at patreon.com slash utopian horizons to uh help me make this uh podcast more sustainable and um keep it keep it coming out regularly if you can't afford to or don't want to support me on the patreon um, an itunes review would be appreciated as well if you've got any questions either about stuff like the Patreon or just general things about the episodes, uh, questions about stuff I've covered, things you uh, think I might have missed, anything like that, you can get in touch at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. You can find the Twitter at utopianhorizons and there's a Facebook page at facebook.com slash utopianhorizons. So uh, thank you for listening and I'll be back soon with lots more stuff.